0: Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. It's episode 527, where Cortland Allen from Indie Hackers joins me. And we talk about moving from agency to SaaS. We talk about equity splits. We talk about the best cities for bootstrappers. And more. Before we dive into that conversation, Startups for the Rest of Us has 890 worldwide ratings across 48 countries. Our most recent review is titled Inspirational. Longtime listener, I run a portfolio of SaaS apps, three built from scratch and one acquired recently. I learned a ton from this podcast. Very grateful. That's Danielle0412 from the UK. Thanks so much for that review, Danielle. If you haven't left us a review or even just a rating, we would really appreciate a five star rating. I'd love to push past that 900 worldwide rating mark on our way to 1,000. In 2021. So, thanks again for joining me. And let's dive into our listener questions that I answer with Cortland Allen. If you haven't heard of Cortland, you should really check out indiehackers.com. It's a great online community for people building online businesses in order to improve their life. And there's a, a range of SaaS and info products and all types of things. But indiehackers.com, as well as the Indie Hackers Podcast, Cortland is the host of that. And it's an excellent interview and topical news show that uh, many of us listen to every week. I'm a fan. So let's dive right in to our first listener question. Cortland Allen, welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us.
1: Rob, thanks for having
0: me. It's always great to have you, sir. I'm excited to talk through some listener questions today. We have a nice stable of things ranging from splitting branding to business structure to co-founder equity, stair-stepping, all that stuff. You ready to dive in?
1: Yeah, ready to. Sounds like a lot of good stuff.
0: As usual, we always start with voicemails at the top of the stack. So we'll roll our first question from Dustin Overbeck here.
2: Hey, Rob. My name is Dustin Overbeck, and I run a web design agency called TownWeb. We are a web design and hosting agency for municipalities all across the United States. I've been running this for 13 years. We have more than 550 customers and we're in about 35 different states. I'm getting ready to build a SaaS app that would be sold specifically to the same customers that I currently have for the web design and hosting part of things, but also to other municipalities who are not currently web design customers of ours. I'm curious to know if you have any input on other web design agencies that entered the SaaS space. Because my question is more about branding and business structure. When I'm looking at the numbers for the SaaS app and the price points that we could sell to and the market that we can go after, I feel that this SaaS business could be 10 to 15 times bigger than what we currently have for the web design and the hosting side of things. So I'm leaning towards, yes, we should have a separate brand for the SaaS product. I'm just kind of curious as if you know of other agencies who have done that same thing or if they entered the market with the same name as their agency. Although we do have a really good brand known in the municipal web design industry, I feel like the brand that we can come out with for the SaaS app could actually be more exciting and maybe even more memorable to those potential clients that we can go after. And the other question is about business structure. So if it's going to be as a separate brand, should it be a completely separate business? I know there are inherent costs and you have two separate businesses because you're now keeping track of two different books, two different tax filings, but if I feel like the second business could be 10 to 15 times bigger than the first business, is it worthwhile to have the separate businesses? Thank you for any input.
0: Thanks for that question, Dustin. Cortland, you have thoughts?
1: I do. I'm looking at his website now, TownWeb. This is pretty cool, this whole idea of having kind of an agency to build websites for the super specific niche of uh, municipal websites. And his question really is about Branding in this way he phrased it. Like should we should we start a new brand or go with our old brand? But I would really separate like your identity from your brand. So you know their name and their logo is what I would classify as their identity. So it's town web with this kind of cool American eagle looking thing going on next to it. But then your brand is more so like your reputation with your customers. What do your customers actually think about you? And I think you can't really change your reputation except slowly over time. You can't really get rid of it either. I think you can't get rid of your identity, and then people can't connect your identity to your reputation, and that's bad if you have a really good reputation. So when I look at this, I think, well, on one hand, like you could change your identity. You could have a completely different logo and name, but preserve your reputation by simply contacting your customers through sales, because I presume when they do this new SaaS tool, they have 550 customers for their previous agency. They could just email these people from their previous identity using their old email address And say, like, hey, this is so and so from TownWeb, the agency you've come to know and love, right? And then, boom, your sort of reputation is cemented because it's already there. They already know you. And you can say, we're working on this new thing. You know, what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. You want to hop on a call. And I think you've got your reputation preserved, which is your brand. And you can sort of transfer that to your new identity with these few customers that you kind of start with. And even if his new business ends up being 10 to 15 times bigger than his old business, which is a pretty bold prediction, I think. You're still going to start probably by doing things that don't scale. You're still going to start with like these sales calls and these cold emails probably, and they're probably going to be towards toward your old customers. And so I think it's worth preserving your reputation there and just making sure they kind of know like who you are and getting kind of a good start there.
0: Yeah, I like the way you're thinking about it. It's essentially the way I think about it is like 37 signals and Basecamp. Or, well, that's probably the best example where it's like 37 Signals was their design agency, it was the company name, because Signal versus Noise, is that right? That was their blog name. And then Basecamp was the product. And you knew that 37 Signals built Basecamp and you trusted 37 Signals because you'd read their blog or their books or whatever. That's how I think about it, which I think is what you're saying here is you have Town Web, it has a brand, it has an identity. Personally, in, in their shoes, I would not name the SaaS app TownWeb. I would have them be very separate, but it could be, what were they saying? Oh, he didn't specify what it was going to be, but it's, you know, XYZ tool by TownWeb, right? You can easily have that. And which is to where you can borrow your brand equity, and it's much like the state of independence SaaS report by MicroConf. You know, it's like we lend the MicroConf branding to this new thing, but it still is able to have its own identity. Because I think to your point, you are going to be selling to both old, you're going to start with old or existing customers. And so having that brand is is important, having the, the relationship. But then when you get out to new customers, I agree with Dustin when he says. I think we could do something more exciting. Like we could come up with a really cool name and a really cool logo and even develop its own identity. And personally, if I were doing this, think about maybe you launch one, two, three SaaS apps. So now you need three different SaaS apps over the course of 10 or 20 years. It's like you don't want them tied to the agency. And if it becomes literally 10 to 15 times the size, since SaaS apps by nature are more profitable than agencies, my guess is much like 37Signals did, much like MailChimp did because they were an agency, before they launched email marketing software, they wound up shutting theirs down. And I know that's, I'm sure that's not Dustin's plan right now. And I'm sure he wouldn't go, you know, go into it saying, I'm going to shut it down and, and shut down or sell it or, you know, somehow walk away from it. Because if you get a SaaS app doing millions of dollars a year, suddenly a lot, things are really kind of annoyances. I've been there. I've had many businesses, you know, and, and when one gets really big, it's like, oh, this is what I should be focusing on. So with that in mind, I would hate for the two to be coupled to the point where you, you lose optionality.
1: Yeah, another business that comes to mind here is Wildbit, which also started as an agency. And now they've got a host of different products. And you can go to wildbit.com and kind of see, you know, here's the company that owns these different products, but you can also go directly to those products, each of which has its own unique brand. And I think it could get very confusing if TownWeb You know, is an agency, but then they also have like a a product called TownWeb, and now it's two different things. And now they're stuck in the situation where they have like one website that's trying to cater to two different customers who need two different, in one case, a product, and one case, a service. And then you're also right. What if they want to launch more SaaS businesses in the future? It's just going to be confusing. So I like the idea of of having separate brands, and you can just sort of manually transfer the reputation from your first brand to your next brand by getting in contact with your existing customers.
0: Exactly. And likewise, his second question was about business entities and whether he should separate them. And look, if you were not a super legitimate web agency that had budget to do it, in the early days, you could say, well, maybe we keep them under the same corporate umbrella. And maybe we just to save on, you know, the 500 or $1,000 a year, maybe it's two grand a year of bookkeeping and tax filings. But given that you are a legitimate business, from the start, if I were in Dustin's shoes, it would absolutely be a separate entity. And whether the SaaS product, whether that's an LLC or an S-Corp or a C-Corp or whatever you want to do it, I would form this thing. I would keep separate books. I would put a chunk of money into it, essentially angel investing. So whether TownWeb puts that money in or you put that money in personally, you give it enough budget that you can build and support it and you can always fund it more later. But you you maintain that because that essentially, if it goes under, like you can, you can then have losses against it, which you should be able to write off. If You ever decide to sell it someday, and I know that's the last thing you're probably thinking about, it should be separate. Because if it's tied in (laughs) expenses and credit cards and bank accounts are all tied into an agency, it's just a mess. And while it feels maybe a little overkill in the early days of, well, I got to have a second tax filing. And yes, you do have to probably go through Stripe Atlas, you know, to get a a separate entity. And now you have whatever, there are some duplicate things. I just don't think you're going to regret. You could always merge them later. It's actually easier to merge things than it is to pull them apart. And, you know, in fact, I went down this road, I had an umbrella company, now it's called Start Small LLC, and it owned several small products that I owned, and I would just slowly pile them on. So it owned my half of microconf and my, my portion of, of all these things. And then Drip initially launched under there. And as Drip got bigger and bigger and started employing all of us and becoming just a more legitimate company, it was like, this should be its own corp and i eventually did have to fork it out basically and and pull it out of this llc that owned all this other stuff and it was it was painful it wasn't totally undoable but you know it turns out it was the right decision because we i think within a year we got the acquisition offer we sold it it would have been an absolute nightmare to try to go through a sale with shared books shared expenses shared, you know you cuz an acquirer wants to see they just want a clean break they want to know it owns you know that this corp owns all the ip and that everything is clean so Thank you for the question, Dustin. Really appreciate that. Our next question is from an anonymous question asker. It's about co-founding an app. What percent equity split he should think about? He says, my business coach came to me with an idea for a SaaS app that he would like me to build and handle the technical side. He would handle the marketing side of things. We would be bootstrapping, so no initial investments. I offered that I would build the app, handle new features, maintenance, upgrades, and support for 40% of profits and 40% of any future sale of the web app. Is this a fair number? Bouncing this off a friend, they said it might be too much, and they were thinking it should be more like 10%. I usually recommend co founders split things 50 50 when I'm asked this question. But my business coach brought the idea to me, and he's approaching retirement, so I reduced it to 40%. I'm not sure I would want to spend the time to develop it for less than 40% equity, since I could use the same time to work on my own SaaS that I'm currently building. My business coach has no experience with SaaS or web apps, so I expect to bring a lot of knowledge on the product side, on the technical side, and That will even cover some of the marketing, optimization, SEO, building an email list, etc. In my opinion, this has a pretty good chance of success. The business coach knows the founder of a similar SaaS in another niche that has 200 plus users at $50 a month and is still growing, so that's like 10K MRR. Thanks for all the great content
1: over the years. Cortland, what do you think? Tricky topic. I think um, I've had some bad co-founder fights in in my past over uh, equity, actually, and I, I think really a lot of it comes down to not exactly the number that you name, but the process that you use to get to that number and how much you and your co-founder are on the same page about that. Because it can be easy to throw a number out. It can be easy to say, oh, let's be 50-50 now. But if you haven't really thought about like why you're choosing that and you haven't specifically agreed with your co-founders and why you're choosing that, later on I think it just opens up just a lot of space for unhappiness and disputes and misunderstanding. And you know, if if it comes down to that, like you want to be able to say, well look, you know, this is what we decided on and here's exactly why. You know, why are we changing this now? And so the first thing I would do, rather than just say it needs to be fifty fifty, maybe like a small discount because it's the other person's idea, I would say the way you split your equity should be based less on equality and everybody getting the same and more on contribution. I think if your level of contribution later on is different, it might arouse some resentment and some tough conversations down the road. So some of the factors that are important to me are like you know, your level of experience and effectiveness, You know how much time you plan to spend on this. It sounds like the question asker has another SaaS business that they're going to be splitting their time between. Does their partner also have another thing going on? Or are they going to be full-time on this? That's a huge factor. Joining later means taking on a little bit less risk, which means like that can affect your equity. The more risk you're taking on, I think the more equity you should probably get. Contributing the idea means taking on more risk because it's kind of your idea and you can go to someone else. I think writing code is pretty effective major thing to do. And so you should think about, okay, what is the other person going to do in their role? And how is that going to shift over time? And like, these are things that are difficult to predict. But what I would do is I would start by sitting down with my potential co-founder and saying like, let's come up with some sort of framework that takes as many of these factors into account as we can possibly predict and then agree on that framework and then have a completely separate conversation after that where you kind of plug in the values and the numbers into this framework and you kind of see what that spits out.
0: So you want to know their contributions in a, in a number of different ways before you talk about equity.
1: Exactly, because there's so many different ways that like, things can change over time. And, like, some of that is protected by vesting your equity, but uh, a lot of it isn't. You know, if somebody decides that they're going to start working only half-time instead of full-time, like, that's something that happens quite often Due to life circumstances, how do you want to how do you want to play that in terms of equity? If your equity was decided with the assumption that you would both be full time on this thing, plus a range of other of other different activities, so I think it's good to just be open minded and open eyed about this kind of stuff and try to try to as best as you can look into the future and predict you know what might go wrong and how can we pre handle it so that when it actually happens, it's not this big surprise and we don't have to sort of figure out what we're going to do from scratch.
0: Yeah, I like that you brought up. Vesting, for sure. I think that's the number one thing I would have is that both of you should be vesting such that if one person walks away, they don't take their equity. I liked your point about full-time, that if you are both going to be full-time, which actually doesn't sound like you are, but if you're planning to be 40 hours a week each, if someone drops to 30 or 20 hours, if you're working at a startup and you have stock options, typically you stop vesting when you go part-time. So that's something to think about. I think the biggest kind of question I have is you're bringing the technical side and you're bringing marketing, SEO, building an email list. So a bunch of the marketing side, like what is your co-founder bringing aside from an idea? And if he's approaching retirement, as you say, how hard is he going to work on this and for how long? There are some maybe yellow flags in my mind of are you both committed? And I think that goes back to your questions, Cortland, of have you talked this through? Have you sat down and said, you're going to retire in two years, Are you going to work on this after this? Or is your plan that you want to build this up and sell it in two years? Well, in that case, what should our vesting schedule look like? And should I maybe take on more of it? Maybe this is more of a side project for you or is it a side project for me? I think everything you've raised, I think kind of of fits into that. There was one question, he had a sentence early on that says, I would do maintenance upgrades and support for 40% of profits and 40% of future sales, a future sale of the web app. We shouldn't we just be doing equity? Like, why wouldn't you just take equity, which in essence would be profits and the sales? I mean, you can all, you can have phantom equity and all that, but I, if you're giving this much to it, I'm just not sure that that's, that's the right approach. So later on, he does mention equity, which is easier to vest than phantom equity. So that may be an aside, but yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of details here that make it an it depends scenario.
1: And I think when you're working with a co-founder, it's not like this shouldn 't be a super tough conversation to have like you 're going to have if things go poorly or there things are stressful later on there 's going to be a lot of other kind of harder conversations to have when like things are actually on the line at this point if you only have an idea you know and you haven 't gotten started really nothing's on the line like no one 's really sacrificed a lot so I think it's kind of a you know ideally when you work with a co founder it 's somebody you 've worked together with you know how you deal with conflict resolution you know that you have shared values, and you want to test that kind of stuff as early as possible, so presumably uh, this person hasn't worked with their co-founder before. But I think having like this conversation up front and really just being straightforward about it is kind of a good test. Because if this conversation goes poorly when there's nothing on the line, like maybe this isn't someone you want to work with.
0: And I also think that as the developer, your work is front-loaded. So it's really easy for the two of you to have a conversation and for you to go spend four, five, six months building a product only to come back and find your co-founder has lost interest. Or your co-founder maybe can't deliver on what they promised, maybe they don't have the connections, maybe they can't do sales, maybe they like what. What is he bringing to the table, and what can he be doing hour for hour if that's if you want an even split or close to it? While you're writing code, because we know there's a lot of things you can do. You can be out having validation conversations, customer development. You can have input on the product. You can be taking pre-sales. You can be writing articles. You can marketing landing pages. You know, I know you said you have most of that knowledge, but having an idea and being a subject matter expert in a space is fine. But that's not even table stakes to me for an even split if you're going to go spend hundreds of hours building and marketing a product.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I think it's one of those things where early on, having the idea seems very important because there's literally nothing else. And so you might think, oh, you know, this person should get 60%. But the more sweat equity you put into things, like the longer you actually sit there and toil and write code and work, uh, as the months and years pass, the value of the work that you're doing increases relative to the value of that idea. So if this person isn't actually contributing like a lot in that domain, which so far it isn't necessarily proven that they have or even can, whereas it's probably pretty proven that like you're a developer who can build things, you're just taking on a lot of risk as a developer in that situation. So
0: thanks again for the question. I hope our thoughts were helpful. Next question is from Franco, and he's talking about the stair-step approach, the first step. He says, thank you for all your awesome content. It really helps motivate me and helps me power through even at the beginnings of a path to a software-centered business slash life. My question for you is, where should I look when trying to take the first step to making something the world can use and appreciate? Thankfully, this SaaS sector has been growing and gaining traction, but for those of us who are beginning from scratch in the industry, it's become increasingly hard to take that first step, mainly in my own experience because it feels like every niche has been saturated and the expertise needed to start something has increased as well. Hopefully I'm wrong and you can tell me or anyone who is in the same place where or how we should approach this problem. Thanks for the podcast. I've been listening for about half a year and I even enjoy the old episodes from years ago. So thanks for the question, Franco. So I'll just add one sentence here. I don't think every niche is saturated. I do think the smaller and smaller you go, there are opportunities. That's what I wrote an entire book on this. But Cortland, what are your thoughts for Franco?
1: Yeah, I like that you said that because the entire idea of there being a staircase, and Rob, you're the expert on this, is that the first step is the smallest step. It's the easiest step. Right. And so you should always be thinking, like, what is the smallest thing that I can do to kind of get started, to get my momentum going, to get a couple of wins under my belt, and then use sort of parlay those wins and the advantages you accrue to take the next step. And I think when you're looking at it from that point of view, it doesn't really matter if a space is saturated, because if, if you're looking at it that way, you're kind of looking at like the 10th or the 11th step on the staircase, right, where you're, you're trying to be focusing on the first step, where you pick such a tiny niche or such a very specific problem or something that's so straightforward that it doesn't really matter that there are other bigger players in the space later on. And so in my opinion, if you're in a particular situation where you're not even sure like what industry you want to go into, what problem you're going to solve, uh, one of the best steps you can take is just to, to do some research. like Take a look at like what's out there, what problems people have. I uh, myself favor an approach where you look at the intersection of things that you're interested in and things where people have valuable problems to solve, as evidenced by the fact that people are spending a lot of money there. So I have a friend who started a business in the recruiting space, and she was very passionate about applying for jobs to become a software engineer, and like how terrible that was, and how opaque the process was. So it was something that was recently on her mind, and she cared a lot about, and she thought she could do a much better job. And it was an industry where companies spent a lot of money on recruiters, on hiring software engineers, on all sorts of different activities there. So it kind of satisfied both requirements. And it took her like a month of just looking around at different things to even just nail, like to sort of figure out that's the problem that she cared about. And that's where she started. And then she started off by writing. You know, writing isn't that competitive. Lots of people are writing, but like you don't need, it doesn't matter how saturated the writing space is. People will still share your blog posts on Twitter if they're well written, they can still you know, be indexed on Google. So I would look toward picking a problem first, and then I would look toward maybe even doing something very lightweight maybe info-related or content-related where it doesn't matter what the competitors are doing and where you can have some real quick wins before I worry too much about jumping straight towards building a SaaS in a competitive space.
0: Yes, I mean, this is where I invoke the startups for the rest of us drinking game and we all do a shot because I say, stair-step approach to bootstrapping, which Franco brought up, right? He raised the issue of where where should I look? And obviously these one-time sale products with a single sales channel like a WordPress plugin or a mobile app or a Shopify add-on or a... Or an info product, as you said, or any type of really any type of app store is makes it theme forest you know any of these things make it pretty easy to get started with not a ton of marketing knowledge needed, and you know imagine if you launch a WordPress theme on theme Forest or you do adopt a WordPress plugin or you or you launch something. every niche is not saturated. The obvious niches are obviously. I, I Saturate is even a strong word because you can always compete, but maybe when you're still in, you know, you're playing high school ball right now and and the minors and the majors, people are are just better at what they're doing, right? They have more experience, they have more budget, and they have more history doing it. And so I do think that you want to take more of the start small, stay small approach, which is to look at smaller niches that are underserved and just cut your teeth at those. And you build up experience, you build up a little bit of revenue, you build up your skill set, you build that tool belt, and then you can go essentially, you know, build up from there. I do think a lot of people make the mistake of wanting to build a SaaS app, which is awesome, and we all aspire to do that. But trying to do that as your first step is a real challenge. So, I mean, frankly, if you know a programming language, like what app store has, you know, if you are a mobile developer, I would probably start thinking about launching something in mobile. But if you are more, if you are PHP, I'd probably lean towards WordPress. And then when you look at all the B two B app stores. And just do a Google search for them, right? There's Salesforce and Shopify, and I don't know. There's got to be dozens of others. I know there's like you can do Photoshop add-ons. You can do just on and on and on. And it's just it's just finding something and and picking it and taking a shot.
1: Yeah, and I like like some of the stories that have inspired me recently from just founders that I've talked to on Indie Hackers. I talked to Tara Reed, who is in the education space, and she's kind of been teaching founders to build businesses without code. And her path for getting started was really simple. I mean, she gave a talk somewhere where she talked about how an app that she was building didn't use any code, and people were interested. And they're like, how did you do it? And she said, oh, I'll, I'll teach you, just pay me $900, and I'll let you know. And she, I think, got like 10 students who paid her, and she taught them, and kind of put out you know, a call, like, hey, I, this went really well, I could teach more people. And she had like, I think, 50 or 60 students sign up for that one. And then after that, she kind of grew by reaching out to influencers in the space and doing kind of Instagram takeover ads of their Instagram pages or Twitter takeovers. You just kind of pay them to advertise to their audiences. And again, like she just started very, very small. She wasn't like, I need to go up against Lambda School or any other sort of code school day one with like a slick website. It was just like one-on-one sales, very small number of students. And I think almost any education business can start that way if you're willing to charge enough for what you're teaching. And then maybe one other example would be Christy Lawrence, who did start with a SaaS app called Plan, but she spent eight or nine months developing relationships with influencers on Instagram, talking to them, getting to know what their challenges were, getting to know what their problems were, getting to know kind of what would be valuable for them in the space, kind of commiserating because she was an influencer herself and sharing tips and tricks. And by the time she kind of had her SaaS built, she kind of had a pretty long list of people who not only would be her users, but who could promote it to their followers and their audiences and could help sell it. And so she ended up making like, I think, 10 or 20 grand in the first week of her SaaS business existing. But that's because she didn't start by just starting to code. She started by talking to lots of people one-on-one, which is something you can always do regardless of how saturated a space is.
0: Yeah, I love it. And so just between you and I, since no one else is listening, I've started work on another book, which is, oh my gosh. Yeah, these things are have you have you written a book? It is so painful.
1: I haven't, but Stripe keeps trying to get me yep. the right one with Stripe Press. <laughs> so
0: it never gets easier. And this is for the fourth, fourth book I'm writing, although Sherry wrote Sherry and I had a bunch of, of podcasts that was essentially she took and then wrote into the second. So it's kind of third and three and a half books, but it's still not getting easier. But the point of that is I obviously have a whole section on finding an idea. And and it's looking for your advantages and it's solving a problem, which is what you've just said. But I have this huge list of things like, okay, so yes, yeah, scratch your own itch. That's what most people quote. And it became famous because Basecamp said it for years. But then that went away because we all scratched our own itches. And it's not that it doesn't exist, but it's like how many bug tracking tools, how many project management tools do we need? So then I have all these other startups that I've seen... Whether it's through Tiny Seed or MicroConf or hearing on Indie Hackers or interviewing on this show, people encounter a problem at their day job. People ha- see a problem of a spouse or a relative or a colleague. People have a poor customer experience and realize they want to build an app that makes it better. People find a problem online by going to a Quora thread or being in Facebook groups. You can translate an existing idea to a new niche. So it's something like, you know, there's proposal software, but there's not proposal software for designers or there's not proposal software for this or that. So just niche something down. You can find a large space with a hated competitor like Drip did with Infusionsoft and Xero did with QuickBooks. You can build on your, if you have an audience reputation, build on that. If you have a good network, build on that. If you So on and on and on. Any of these is almost individually, a thought experiment, each of those things I just rattled off. And again, those will be in a book out sometime next year, maybe. But there are so many ways. And each of them, there's no path, there's no blueprint for this part. So there's no one, two, three step. Now, once you get, I mean, once you get to product market fit, and you have customers, and you start having channels at work, it kind of is, it's extremely repeatable. And usually, there is a pretty solid blueprint of how to go from there up how to go from there to a million to 10 million or whatever. There's obviously all these paths and everything. But in these early days, it's much more you have a compass, not a map. And so you're just kind of wandering and trying to take in thoughts and see what resonates with you and see, you know, there's product founder fit and there's all these things. But there are a lot of ways to get there. Don't expect that anyone else's approach will definitively work for you. But look at a lot of different approaches. And I like, Cortland, that you brought up, the you know, the folks you interviewed on Indie Hackers because those are just two examples of people who kind of found their way. And uh, maybe it sounds like they almost did it accidentally, maybe they didn't, they just kind of took it one step at a time in these very small increments and build it into something pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, I'm a big fan of being very deliberate about ideation. I think it's a very tall order to kind of sit around and wait for inspiration to strike you in the shower. But if you're going through the world and you're deliberately looking for problems and you're you know, you've got your kind of antenna up, and whenever you see somebody complain about something, whenever you see somebody pay for something, whenever you see somebody asking for something, you, you evaluate that problem, you're just going to get a lot more sort of shots on goal. And most of those problems won't be something that really resonates with you, but I think if you're just sort of you know absentmindedly hoping a problem comes to mind, like almost none of them <laughs> will turn into anything. And often if you just start with something that's not great, in the course of building that, you'll encounter lots of other problems that are burning, that maybe you need solved, or you see other people need solved, and I think that can get you to where you want to go. So there is no... You know, tried and true blueprint or roadmap. But there are a lot of things you can do to massively increase your chances of having a good idea to start with.
0: Yeah. And for me, one of those is having a notebook and taking notes, as you said, every time an idea comes around or someone mentions a pain point and just adapting that over time. My best ideas never come in flurries, they never come instantly. They almost always come and are refined over weeks if not months. And I have lists and lists of ideas that I've had since probably 2008 or nine in notebooks. And now a bunch of them have been built and I can check them off the list. I don't need to do those. <laughs> but you know, the, the new ideas, I mean the idea for Drip came over weeks and months and you know, it wasn't just a, a simple thing and so they
1: evolve. I'll say one more thing on that which is the cool thing about taking notes the way that you're doing it is it sort of helps you escape this, like, this recency bias where whenever we get a new idea we just get super excited about it and it's the best thing ever and a lot of that excitement is because it's new. And if you kind of let your ideas simmer for a while, like four to six weeks, four to six months, sometimes like ideas that you were really excited about, it turns out that you're not that excited about. And some of these ideas that you've written down, like you'll be excited about for years. And those are the ideas that actually have legs that actually resonate with what you want to build and that might have some merit like on a structural strategic level as well. And so I think like keeping a running log like that is so great because it can help you make better decisions instead of just impulsively choosing what the product of the day, whatever got you excited, you know this week.
0: Yeah, I have a 48-hour cooling-off period on registering domain names. Yes. We've talked about this, I think, because <laughs> how many domain names do I have? Ian Shone from uh, Tropical NBA calls it the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. That's his GoDaddy account because I used to register domain. Oh, great idea. Register the domain. Now it's like two days. And then if I still like it, I'll register the domain. And then, yeah, I've written up entire... SaaS apps or business ideas and come back to them a week or two later and just like, what was I thinking? This is a terrible idea. And that's good. <laughs> it's good to see it with fresh eyes. Yep. So thanks for the question, Franco. Hope that was helpful. Our next question is from Kevin. He's asking about the best city for bootstrappers. He says, What do you think are the top cities for bootstrappers? I've heard San Francisco and New York City are too expensive. I've heard cities like Raleigh, North Carolina. Denver, Austin, Salt Lake City, Minneapolis, and Atlanta are good choices. Do you have any thoughts on this, and how much does it matter? Thanks in advance. Kevin. Cortland, you're actually uh, currently moving about the country. What do do you think about this?
1: Yeah. So I did the SF thing for 10 years, and I bootstrapped a business in SF, and I can say you're uh, 100% spot on. It is too expensive. My burn rate was absolutely insane trying to bootstrap a business from SF, which was fine for me because... I probably needed a little bit of pressure, uh, something to light a fire under my ass and get me, get me coding. But I then embarked on a, a six-week road trip earlier this summer, and now I'm in Seattle, which is also expensive, but much less expensive than SF. My take on this entire question is that it does matter where you live, but in terms of business it matters less and less, especially as the world becomes more remote, which we've seen happen in sort of drastic fashion with the pandemic. But I, I seriously think there's, there's more to life than just business. And the city that you're living in decreasingly matters to your business and increasingly matters to your life outside of your business. And these two things are related, actually, because it's easier to continue with your bootstrap business if your life outside of your business is actually happy. So I think there, there's a lot of mayor here to paying attention to kind of the universal things that we know contribute to happiness and not trying to innovate like too much here. Health. Right. Do you live in a place where it's easy for you to exercise, it's easy for you to eat well? For me, like in Seattle, like I picked a place where I'm about a half a mile from the nearest Whole Foods, which is one of my favorite grocery stores. So I pretty much walk there, walk a mile every day to get groceries and cook. And like just having that habit in my life is super easy. And if I had to drive to go to the grocery store, I would just be less healthy. Relationships, like if you live near friends and family, that's huge. In Seattle, I have four of my closest friends in the world who live here and they all know each other. And we've been going on lots of hikes and doing lots of stuff together. And it's just been like so great just for me personally. Uh, And just, I'm, I'm just having more fun in life living next to them than I would if I moved somewhere where like I didn't have friends or family. So I think that's a big thing to take into account. Obviously financial security, living places where you can afford, especially if you're bootstrapping, like you want to keep that burn rate low. And maybe the one caveat here is I will say that there are places where the people there can give you energy and actually be motivating. So it does help near to be near people, who are actually getting stuff done, because they will inspire you. And so I think a lot of the cities that you listed, Raleigh, Denver, Atlanta, like there are kind of burgeoning tech scenes. And it's not impossible to find somebody who's doing something that you're doing. And people aren't going to look at you like you have two heads when you tell them you're bootstrapping a tech business. So if you can get all of those, I would try to check all those boxes. But if you can only check a few, I would check the ones that align with your personal happiness and health over trying to be somewhere where like there's some sort of weird business advantage, because I think that just matters less and less.
0: Yeah, I think those are great great insights. I think... What he asked and what you echoed and what I will also echo is if you're bootstrapping, stay away from expensive cities unless you have a lot of money. I mean, one of the advantages of bootstrapping drip in Fresno, California is that we could hire developers for about a third of the price as the Bay Area and it was about a three-hour drive to the Bay Area. So we we could live in California but not deal with the, the high rents and the high salaries. So I think you have to weigh those to a certain extent. What you touched on, which is, you know, what city kind of resonates with you, there is a Paul Graham essay called Cities and Ambition. And basically what he says is certain cities that he's lived in, they have an ambition and the people around you have an ambition. And so he had lived in Boston and I think Paris and New York and a couple other places. And he said in Boston, the ambition is to be more intelligent. You know, there's like more universities per capita than any, I think believe, any other city in the country. In Paris, it was like to be something about art. It was either to to enjoy beauty or enjoy art. In New York, it was about money. The Bay Area was about power. Seattle is like outdoors. You know, each of these cities, it doesn't mean you have to be that, but if you value that thing, LA, I live there, it was about looking good. Like there's a lot of physical attractiveness and some people were shallow, but some people are also just really into being fit and that's okay. But if you really don't want to have to be cool, LA can grind on you. Like, if you don't want to own the new sunglasses and you don't want to, you know, dress like with the new fashion and you don't want to be really in shape, it can wear on you. And the same thing, if you're not into outdoorsy stuff and the rain bothers you, well, maybe Seattle's not a fit. And so I think trying to find a city, trying to live in a lot of different cities and figure out which one's ambition fits you, I think is, is what you're saying. And I think it lines up. Cities and Ambition, I highly recommend folks, check that out. For me, if I were to just pick some cities, and this is mostly based, is based on travel and a lot based on listening to the Tropical MBA podcast, because they talk a lot about location, right? Because they're, you know, if you think about startups for so the rest of us, it's about SaaS and and startups and software versus TMBA is about all different business types. But the unifying factor there started as digital nomadism, the ability to travel while you start companies. And so in the US, if I were to just Pick cities for me personally: it'd be Seattle, Portland, or Austin, and Minneapolis is one too. Although the the winters here are tough, but man, this the quality of life here is amazing. And so, if you can get get over the winters, I think those are some great cities. If I was in Europe, I'd probably live in Barcelona. There's an entrepreneur community there. It's a beautiful city. South America: Medellin is a big uh, you know hotbed of TMBA folks. In Asia, it's Chiang Mai and Saigon. So those are places that I hear there being entrepreneurial activity and. To your point, Cortland, it's not that my business should be based there. It doesn't matter where my business is based. I name those cities because I think there are enough other entrepreneurs around to keep you motivated and and that you can meet up. Because I have, look, I had a friend who's extremely successful now And lives in a city where he has entrepreneur friends and stuff, but he lived in Miami for years, or maybe it was, I don't know, somewhere in Florida. And he said, just no one here is starting companies, you know, and he's like, I have to get out of this place, even though he had a business and it was successful. He's like, I can't stand to be here because nobody thinks like I do. And everyone's retired or they're partying. And this is not fun for me. And so you have to know yourself. Are you cool just not having anyone with anything really in common with you? Well, then maybe go live on the beach in in Florida because I'm sure that's an amazing life from a climate perspective and and from a whatever, an enjoyment and a partying perspective, the nightlife. But if you want to have some type of face-to-face community, then I do think you need to think about there are a lot of cities in the country that just won't have that. And of course, you can look at, for, to try to determine this, I would look at Tropical MBA. I would look at indie locations of indie hackers, meetups. I know they're not happening right now because of COVID, but they'll they'll come back. I would look at places that we hold microcomps because we are probably going to have seven, eight, nine microcomps in 2021. And we're picking cities that have a lot of entrepreneurial activity. And you can go to meetup.com and you know search for startup, founder, entrepreneur stuff. And as I was moving around, because Sherry and I moved, lived in, we moved 10 times in 10 years when she was, when we got married and she was in grad school and when we were going to go to that next city, I would always go on meet up and try to figure out, is this going to be a place where I basically have no, no entrepreneurial friends or do I think I can meet some people?
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, such a great point. This uh, Paul Graham-esque point that like you're going to basically we're very tribal creatures and every city is its own tribe and people value different things and have different cultural norms and different tribes. And, you know, I lived in Boston as well, and I met like at least five or 10 people in Boston who imitated John Nash from that movie, A Beautiful Mind, who just wanted to be the crazy genius, because that's kind of what Boston elevated, like academic excellence and genius. And I've lived in SF for 10 years, and like I met at least five or 10 people who emulated Steve Jobs and who wanted to be like the crazy, super successful startup founder. And I think even if you are sort of a contrarian person, like a lot of your energy comes internally, yeah, but a lot of your energy as a human being comes from your tribe and your surroundings. And if you're in Miami and everybody's partying all the time, like you're just going to feel bad about staying in to to do any work, you know? And if you're in Seattle and everyone's hiking, you're going to feel bad if you don't (laughs) go on a hike every now and then. So I want to second that uh, idea of understanding like what tribe you're going to be moving into and make sure it's one where the things that people value are going to push you in the direction that you want to go.
0: To close us out on this question, there's an interesting point around venture funded versus bootstrap and mostly bootstrap companies. And venture funded companies have traditionally been very densely packed in a handful of cities. And I don't remember what the exact number was, but it's like 80% of venture, as of five or 10 years ago, it was like 80% of venture funded companies were in two or three cities. It was really, really low, it may even have even been 90%. It was incredible. Well, when we did the state of independent SaaS survey and then the report last year, We had 340 different cities of bootstrappers and bootstrap and mostly bootstrap founders. And the interesting thing is the number one city, at least according to this report, which had just under 1,600 responses from around the world, number one city is London with 4% of the respondents. The second city is remote with... (laughs) Three percent, meaning they just had no headquarters, you know. And then the third city, which I think may be skewed because I'm here, is Minneapolis, because I'm actually surprised that it's that high, but it's two and a half percent. And then from there, it's like two percent is Austin, New York, San Francisco, Toronto. We up 1.7 percent is Denver, Portland, Boston, Chicago. You know, it's just all these cities. And then that goes to Australia. So it is all over. It really is, so you can live anywhere it's just a matter of balancing all of these things, balancing the ambition, then the desire of the place itself of the community, and then are there entrepreneurs around to kind of have camaraderie with
1: yeah, and a lot of the cities you just listed are uh were kind of at the top of the list of indie hackers meetups cities <laughs> where you could go to those cities like I've been to great meetups in Toronto and London and Dublin and Denver, and uh, you know one continent we missed was Africa i've been to Cape Town twice and just met a ton of bootstrap founders living the life. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. It's extremely cheap, extremely affordable, and people there are very motivated. So I love this idea of, of the fact that these bootstrap companies are spread out. There is no like one base for bootstrappers. It's all over the world.
0: Corlin Allen, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. I had a blast. Same here. Thanks for inviting me on. If folks want to keep up with you, you are at CSAllen on Twitter, as well as at IndieHackers. I assume you're one of the the mischief makers behind that account.
1: Yeah, I occasionally get behind the Twitter account.
0: (laughs) I bet. And then IndieHackers.com, of course, if they want to see what you're working on every day. Thanks again for joining me, man. Thanks for having me, Rob. And thank you for joining us this week. I hope you enjoyed that. We have several listener questions left in the coffers. But as always, voicemails go to the top of the stack. If you want to send us a Dropbox link to questions at startupsfortherestofus.com, Google Drive links work too, of course. And you can also send text questions. We don't have such a huge backlog that we couldn't use some additional questions on any of these topics or any questions you are facing. You can remain anonymous or you can plug your project that you're working on if you want. So feel free to send your emails to questions at startups of Thanks again for joining me. And I will talk to you again next Tuesday morning.